It's Sunday or Family Sunday, so for those of you who are normally across the street, we're so glad that you guys are hanging with us today. And it's also the first day of Advent, which we're really excited. And as Lee has already mentioned, this is a season where we begin to turn our hearts towards Christmas and help prepare ourselves. Because I don't know about you, but this is a season that starts to just kind of get crazy. You've got demands, you've got parties, you've got shopping. Some of you guys have already been like elbowing other people that you don't even know for televisions and socks or whatever, right? It's just, this season gets crazy. And so for us, we just want to slow down and prepare our hearts. And one of the ways we're going to do that this year is over the next four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we are going to slowly go through each of the different gospel messages. Today we're going to be in John. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. Um, I was talking to Kelly when we were doing that whole question of what do you love about this season? And he was talking about how he likes it cold. And I'm going, yeah, I have to wear closed-toed shoes. I don't love that so much. And I have to put on a wetsuit if I'm going to try to go and body surfing with D at the beach. And I don't love that. But I do love, we had our first fire of the season last night. We, my boys went and gathered up a whole bunch of pine cones, which are way more fun to burn than regular logs. That was fun. And, and then our, our family tradition one of the things I love more than anything is lights during Christmas. I love going down the street, and a, and a street that's normally just totally dark is lit up like you're going through a Thomas Kincaid painting, or like you're, you're like in the midst of a gingerbread land, and I love that. And so one of our traditions as a family is Thanksgiving Day, either before we go and have turkey dinner or afterwards, we pull out the Christmas stuff and we start decorating, because we are not going to waste another moment. My sister-in-law listens to Christmas songs year-round. That's kind of her thing. That's too much for me. But starting Thanksgiving Day, it is fair game. And so those Christmas lights went up and our house got decorated. And there's something so wonderful about that feeling. And, and have you ever, before we dive into John, have you ever asked yourself why we put up Christmas lights? Thanks. That's a great question. I'm glad that you asked it. Like, why do, why do we do this? Why do we decorate with lights? So let me explain. I, I did a little bit of research this week. It turns out that Christmas lights were not originally founded for Christmas or even by Christians. In fact, it, it came out of during a time when there wasn't electricity, during those cold winter months when the sun starts to go down earlier and rise later every day. And so your days are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And for people who at that time didn't even know about God, didn't worship Jesus at all, had never heard the gospel message, for them, they worshipped that which could care for them. And the sun was one of those things that protected them because the sun's light helped their crops grow. And without it, they'd starve. And the sun's light melted the snow. And without it, they would freeze to death. And so they worshipped the sun. And every winter, as the sun came up later and it went down earlier, yeah, it came up later and went down earlier, they started to mark this as the dying of the sun. And their world began to slow down. They spent more time indoors. And they would begin to light fires in their houses or build bonfires. This is where we get that idea of a Yule log. They would burn these things in the dark winter months, hoping to kind of coax the sun back out. They would also go and cut off branches of evergreen trees from where we get our Christmas tree. They would cut those branches off and they would decorate their homes with them to help remind them of the hope that they had that winter would end and spring would return. 
And as that sun went down further and further, every year on the same date, December 22nd, we reached something called the winter equinox. And that's the day when it is the shortest day of the year. The sun rises at the latest point and goes down earlier. If you're up in Alaska, you won't even see the sun. And the higher up you get, the less sunlight you actually get. And for three days, the 22nd, 23rd, and 24th, the sun would be at its very lowest point in the sky, and it would be up for the shortest amount of time. And they called this, these people who didn't know Jesus, had never heard the gospel message, they called that the dying of the sun. But every year, something would happen. On the 25th of December, the sun would start to come up a little earlier and and go back down a little later. For those of you who understand the working of the world, it's because our, our earth tilts on its axis and the earth would start to tilt back so that the sun was coming up a little later or earlier and rising a little bit later and you had a little bit more sunlight. And they called that, these people that didn't know Jesus, they called that the rebirth of the sun. Now, let's go with this for a second. Because missionaries began to come to these individuals who had never heard of Jesus and they began to share the good news, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. They said, listen... Don't worship the Son. Worship the Son of God. God in human flesh who loves you and who created you and loves you so much that He came to earth to die for your sins. You worship a Son that every year dies for three days and then is resurrected? Let me tell you about a God who took on human flesh and for three days was in a tomb and was raised from the dead. And here's the thing. Those people who had never heard of Jesus before, when they heard the gospel message, many of them gave their hearts to Jesus. But now the question became, well, what do we do? Do we just jettison all of our traditions? That when we come to these, the Yule logger, and later on it was, you know, Christmas trees with candles, and they would put literal live candles onto drying Christmas trees, which is a great idea. <laughs> if you like your house to be part of that bonfire. Um, <clears throat> apparently what they used to do is they would have a, a they would only light them for like, 10, 15 minutes at a time and they would have a bucket of water and a bucket of sand just in case your Christmas tree became a Christmas pyre. And so they said, what do we do? Do we just jettison all of our traditions? But here's the beautiful thing. Our God is a God of props. He loves to use imagery to remind us of deep-seated truths. And he's not afraid to borrow from non or from secular places. So for instance... The Romans are the ones that invented the cross. They invented it as a torture implement, a place that was kind of identified as death. Cursed as anybody that hangs on a cross was one of those things. And yet, because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross, we have taken that cross that used to be identified as a torture implement and we've made it a declaration of God's love, a declaration of hope. So we actually decorate our church with crosses. As a reminder that death could not overcome our God and that he loves us and we have hope in him. So do you see how we have already had this mindset of we can take something that the world understands and refocus it and repackage it in such a way that it carries a kernel of truth into people's hearts. And so rather than saying, hey, we need to get rid of all of these pagan traditions of having light in your home during those dark winter months or having evergreen trees as a hope that that spring was coming, let's go ahead and refocus it. Rather than worshiping the sun in the sky, 
let's use that light to remind us of the Son of God who came into this earth to bring light and to bring hope in the darkness, to lead slaves who had been blinded by sin out of their slavery and back into the arms of their Father in heaven who loves them. And so we, these missionaries, took and refocused traditions. And so that's where we get this idea of Christmas lights. And I I will mention that there is a, a really firm foundation for light and Christ being the light of the world found in Scripture. And we're going to do that. We're going to look at that in John chapter 1. Because there are three other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And each of those Gospels likes to focus more on the birth of Jesus as a, a baby in a, in a, laid in a manger with donkeys and other things around. And we're going to look at each of those stories in the coming weeks. But John does something very unique and different. He kind of steps back and takes more of a a cosmic perspective on what was going on with Jesus' birth. In fact, the first couple of words of John's gospel echo the first words of the Bible found in Genesis. In the, how does it go? In the beginning. Now in Genesis, it starts, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he spoke. What was not into existence by the very words of his mouth? Let there be light. Let there be land. Let there be life. And the words themselves brought this into existence. Now John, in his gospel, begins at that beginning, but rather than focusing on God the Father, he focuses on the words themselves. And so we read here, in the beginning was the word or the logos, this divine creative power of God. And the word was with God. It was separate, a personality of its own. And the word was God himself. This was a divine creative being. We are going to find that this word is actually talking about Jesus, the Christ, God's anointed redeemer. Jesus was not created by God. He didn't start out as a baby in a, laid in a manger and then grow into the Messiah. He was at the very beginning of creation, actively participating in the creation of the world. So rather than just redeeming mankind, he actually created mankind. And John makes that point here in verse 2. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made, and that includes... Every single tree, every single animal that walks along the or swims or flies through this earth, every single one of us, Jesus not only saved us, but he had his hand in making us. His fingerprints are all over us. And then in verse 4, John goes on, In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. So he changes up the metaphor. Not simply was Jesus the creative power through which all things in creation were made, but he was also the light of the world, shining in the darkness. In verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome him, or has not overcome it. And so we look at Jesus, and he was more than just this creative power, he was also a light shining into the darkness. Have you ever like gone outside at night and you, 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 
you know, in our backyard at night because we have clouds and because we live in an area where there's just really no stars that show up because of all of the light pollution and whatnot. I look outside and it can be pretty stinking dark in our backyard. And if I were to walk back there, I'd end up walking into something. And so the first thing that I do before I walk into the backyard is flip that light on. And when I do, every once in a while, I flip that light on and there's, there's an animal or something that's been kind of like creeping through the yard and all of a sudden it's like, uh, and it scatters and it runs, right? And that's the kind of idea of Jesus coming in and being light because here's the reality. When God created everything and spoke it into existence, it was good. He's a good God and he made a good creation and he made us good. Our ancestors, Adam and Eve, were created in his image to be his representatives, caring for, being stewards of creation. But in, verse, in chapter 3 of Genesis, we know what happens. Here comes Satan in the form of a serpent slithering into God's good creation and he begins to, count, or to plant seeds of doubt into Adam and Eve's heart. Did God really say not to eat this fruit? Listen, you're not going to die. God is holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He's made you deficient. And Adam and Eve suddenly looked at the fruit and realized, well, maybe this can give us what we think now that God has withheld from us. And we want to be like him. And so they ate. And in that moment, something happened. Sin entered into God's creation and twisted it. And it twisted their perception of themselves. For the very first time, they recognized their nakedness as something that was not acceptable. They were ashamed of themselves. And so their tendency was to go and hide. And they covered themselves up to hide their imperfections from one another. They hid from God as if they could hide from him because they were ashamed of what they had done and they were scared, quite honestly. And from Adam and Eve on, mankind was shackled by our sins, blinded by our sin and our shame. And try as we might, though we we bore the fingerprints of our creative God who loves us, there was nothing that we could do to make ourselves right with him. Even the law that was given through Moses was never intended to be a ladder that we could somehow climb into God's good graces. Instead, it was more like that <clears throat> um, you know, dentist x-ray to show us that we had cavities, to, to show us and to lead us into the arms of a Savior, into the one that could actually do something about it. It was a spotlight shining in our lives. So this light that had come into the world, Jesus, the light of truth, the light of life, Jesus himself called himself the light of the world. You don't need to turn here, but in John chapter 8, this is a theme that runs all throughout John, Jesus being the light. Jesus himself said this in verse 12 of John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you follow me, you're not going to walk and stumble through the darkness. You're not going to be weighted down with the chains of your sin. And your shame. Instead, I will guide your steps and I will lead you home. I will lead you out of captivity. I will shine my light, my healing light against the very things that weigh you down. 
But here's the problem. I don't know about you, but I don't love light all that much, especially when I've been in darkness for a while. Have you ever been like laying in your room? Kathy does this to me all the time. Be laying in the room, kind of have been asleep or maybe trying to go to sleep and she'll walk in and she'll flip on the light, maybe not realizing I'm there or just like it's time to get up. Some of you guys, right? Mom and dad come in your room and flip on the light. You're like, ah, turn it off. Jeez, what's going on? Leave me alone. Pull the covers over. Kind of, I need a little bit more darkness right now. That hurts because light's painful particularly when you've been spending time in darkness. Light exposes what's in the darkness. And for those of us who aren't really proud of how we look, those of us who are well aware of the fact that we need to put on our fig leaves before we can be presentable, those of us who need to kind of, you know, put on some fig leaf stuff in our hair before we can be seen because the bedhead is, I guess it's in, isn't it? (coughs) But we, just like Adam and Eve, have a tendency to be averse to the light. And and the reality is there were people, even in Jesus' day, who had an aversion to the light. And John, in in the beginning of John chapter 1 here, we're going to pick up his narrative in verse 9, or in, in verse 10. John is going to recognize the fact that although Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the world, this divine word that brought everything into existence... And the light of the world shining in the darkness, even though Jesus was the light, there were people who rejected him. Verse 10, he came to that which was his own. Why is it his own? Because he made it. Because he created this world. He came to that which was his own. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. There were some, the, the Pharisees in particular, the, leader of, the leaders of the Jewish religious party who should have recognized Jesus for who he was, should have been excited. I mean, they had been the ones who had been hoping beyond hope that they could somehow encourage the coming of the Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer. They became legalistic, pharisaical. It's become a term because they were so zealous about this. Zealous about keeping the law. So much so that they became legalistic. All in hopes that they could somehow encourage the Messiah to come. And yet when the Messiah came, God's anointed Redeemer came to bring life to those who were lost in death. To bring light to those who were blinded by darkness. By their sin. They didn't recognize him. Instead, they viewed him as a danger, a rabble-rouser, a false teacher. And they did everything they could to snuff his light out. So much so that they ultimately encouraged Roman guards to seize, try, and ultimately kill him. All because he didn't fit their expectation of what the Messiah would look like. All because Jesus shined light into the darkness And they didn't like what they saw in themselves. I remember, actually, you know, going back, Jesus kind of said something similar in John 3. For those of you who want to turn there, it's probably just one or two pages over. We all know John 3.16, right? If you do, let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son or his one and only son that whoever believes in him 
will not perish, but have eternal life. We know that. And then we typically stop reading at that point. But let's read a little bit further on. Verse 17 of John 3. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. In other words, Jesus came to be a doorway back into relationship with God. He came to be a light that shined on the pathway back into our father's arms. And if we are willing to walk through that doorway or stay in the light, he will guide us to our father. But if we're not willing to, if we get into our mind, nope, I got to do it my way. I'm going, I've got to be in charge. And I'm not really willing. I don't think that he's the only way, the only truth and the only life. Then we're going to wander in darkness, trying to do what nobody in history has been able to do, earn their way to God. Fight, climb, perform their way back into God's graces. We simply can't do it. That's why Jesus came in the first place. And so John sums this up in verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. However, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. I read that. This is the verdict. Lights come into the world, but but people hated the light because their deeds were evil. It makes me think (laughs) <laughs> of my, my dog Heidi from growing up. We, my parents, my mom actually started training dogs and we, um, she was paid to train this dog Heidi for a guy who had a turtle farm. Paid several thousand dollars to train this dog and then she gives the dog back. She'd been trained to heal and all these kind of things. The dog starts chewing on the turtles. Guy calls her up and goes, would you like this dog that I just paid you a bunch of money to train? Okay. This dog was a spaz. Her middle name, her, her name was Heidi. We called her Heidi Go Away. That became her full name. <laughs> Heidi Go Away. Heidi was one of those dogs that you never needed to question whether or not she liked you because she showed you with her whole body. Not, not only was she shaking her tail, she was shaking her everything. And you would come in the house and there was Heidi and she was jumping up on you and she was licking and she was so excited to see you. Unlike cats, I've never been a cat person because cats are just kind of like, eh, whatever. Dogs? You never have to question where you sit with dogs. They love you. They're excited to see you. And they show you with their whole body. And Heidi was wagging her tail and licking every part of you that she could get her her tongue on. Whatever. Except that there was every once in a while we'd come home. And Heidi would not be at the front door to greet us. And we knew. Without, beyond the shadow of a doubt, we knew, well, Heidi's done something right? Heidi is ashamed. We didn't even need to see it. We pretty much knew that the entire kitchen would be strewn with trash everywhere because that was her MO. That's where she went. That was her hobby horse. That was, that was her thing. And we knew that when we walked into the house and Heidi was not there to greet us, Heidi, where are you? You know, if she showed up, it's 
tail between the leg, head down, kind of slinking in, looking, oh, they're there. They did. Oh, shoot, they're still there. You don't even need to see it to realize, okay, our dog has done something and she is ashamed of herself. She's terrified of our response. She doesn't want to come into the light because she is embarrassed. And I think about that and I go, my goodness, I am so much like that too. I could tell you dozens of examples from, I could tell you an example from this week, but instead, because we got, it were, (sighs) no, (sighs) because we're a family and we've got our kids in here today. I'm going to share a story from when I was your age. I was about eight or nine, I think. And my parents, we used to, they used to have a cabin, and we were up in Big Bear. We were staying at the cabin, and one of my favorite things to do was to go explore. I'd love to just go and, you know, throw pine cones at trees and, and see if I could make them explode. I, it's a Y chromosome thing, right? I, see, I would, I would try to, like, pile up the, um, well, whatever I could to try to stop the stream. At one point, we actually had Arrowhead Mountain Spring Water call our house and go, can you please stop stopping up the stream? Because all of these pine needles keep making their way into our filters and it keeps clogging it up. And that's like shutting down our bottling thing. Sorry. But one day I was kind of hiking around the hills looking for stuff and I spied this garage door that was left open on this person's house. And I look in the garage and (gasps) golf clubs. I could do way more damage with a golf club to a pine cone than a tree would, you know, like throwing it against. So I went and grabbed a golf club. Started hammering away at pine cones. Probably for those of you who actually golf, probably wasn't very good for it. But I played with that thing all day long, was kind of wandering around. And at one point, my mom sees me and she sees the golf club in my hand. She goes, Eric, where did you get that? (gasps) In this moment, I have a choice. Do I walk into the light, be exposed in the full glory of my shame, and have to face the consequences? Or do I throw on a fig leaf and pretend? That sounds a lot better right now, right? And so I made a, I made a little white lie. Oh, I found it. I, I was just kind of wandering around and there were some pine needles and I saw it sticking out and there it was. I just... I, my mom bought it. She believed me. And in my mind, I got away with it. I got to keep my precious... Left it, you know, we, we ended up taking it home, put it in the garage. There's not a lot of things that an eight-year-old Wayman is allowed to hit with a golf club at home that would be safe. So we left it in the garage for the most part. But I'll tell you this. I thought I had gotten away with it. I thought that I'd slapped on a fig leaf and hid my sin. But I didn't get away with it. Because the reality is, inside, I knew I've stolen this. And not only that, but now I've lied about it. And the shame began to build and grow and fester in the darkness of my hiding. You know, if you were to ever go to a doctor, you know, after you've been cut and you put a Band-Aid over it, what's the first thing the doctor's going to do? Take that painfully rip it off. And if you've got arm hair like I do, it's not so fun. Why does he do that? First, you have to see what's going on, right? The first thing you need to do is expose it 
to see what's going on there. And then if you leave a bandage on too long, although it's there to stop the, the flow of blood, ultimately, if you leave it on too long, it's going to get infected. And in the darkness, germs will begin, begin to multiply and you can easily get infection. And so doctors will remove that. And in fact, they'll encourage you to allow it to breathe throughout the day. Because the light needs to hit it. Light does more than just expose things. Light also heals things. And so my golf club became for me a a burden that I carried around my neck. Every time I walked into the garage, it was there as a tangible reminder of my sin. And it just weighed me down. And for like a month, the, the, the shame of what I'd done began to fester inside of me to the point where I was just, I was kind of faced again with that choice. Do I continue to lie about it and pretend like nothing's going on? Or do I walk into the light and kind of tear this bandage off and deal with it? And I finally just went, enough is enough. And I went into my parents' room and I confessed. Uh, you know that golf club that I said I found? I, I didn't find it. I took it out of somebody's garage and thankfully my parents were very very gentle in that they recognized how much i had been going through in dealing with this and they recognized that this was an opportunity to teach me but there were still consequences to my choice i still had to face the light and part of that meant the next time we went up to the cabin my dad and i and that golf club that's a little dinged a little bent a little worse for wear. It's been Waymanized. My dad and I in this golf club walked up to the house, knocked on the door, and I got to hand the club to the man and say, I'm sorry I took this from you. And then I had to face the music. If he had wanted me to buy him a new club, that was going to be something. He, he was very gracious. And I don't even remember what else happened. All I remember is It was terrifying to tell the truth. It was terrifying to walk into the light. And yet, it was also the only way to heal through that. I didn't want to come into the light. But it was the only way to heal. It was the only way to deal with that shame. And in the same way, Jesus Christ came into the world to be light in the darkness and he gave us the choice. Are you going to run from the light, hide from the light because A, you're ashamed and you're embarrassed or B, you simply don't want to give this up. Whatever this precious thing is, you don't want to give it up. You're not done with it yet. Your flesh cries out, I need this. So you know what? You can say, I love you. I need you. I'm totally for you, Jesus. But at the end of the day, you're not ready to fully give your heart. Because this precious thing matters way too much. And so with one arm, we raise it up and we praise Jesus. And the other arm, we keep it hidden behind our back in the darkness, terrified that anybody else would know that we've got this. Terrified that we don't belong here. Because if anybody knew the stuff that we were really dealing with, they'd want nothing to do with us. 
May I be the first to say I am somebody who is attracted to the darkness because there is a part of me that does not want to submit to Jesus Christ. I've got a flesh part of me that desperately needs to come into the light. And I don't think I'm alone in that. And the beautiful part of this is the reminder that God loves us. It's not like he's not aware of our stuff that we deal with. And he loves us anyway. And he sent Jesus to deal specifically with that flesh part of us. He gives us the Holy Spirit to shine a light into those areas of our flesh so that slowly, it's called the sanctification process. Basically, it means that the Holy Spirit shines the light of God's love and truth into our hearts and from the inside out begins to deal with that infection of our sin. And so, yes, there were people in Jesus' day that rejected him, that ran from him, wanted nothing to do with him and just wanted to shut him out and shut the light off. But there were others who saw the light and recognized their desperate need for a Savior and ran to him. And we read back in John chapter 1. He came to those which were his own, but his own did not receive him. And yet, to all who did receive him, this is verse 12, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. From Adam and Eve on, though we were created in God's image, we were separated from our Father in heaven. Sin basically put us in shackles. And shame darkened our perspective of ourselves and one another and this world. And we have been laboring in the valley of the shadow of our own imperfection and our own death. The death of our identity, the death of our peace, the death of our joy, the death of our relationships. That was our lot in life, shackled by sin. And God said, I love them too much to allow them to reside there for eternity. So he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He sent the divine word, Jesus, the Messiah, God in human flesh to become one of us, to walk amongst us, and ultimately to die in our place, to take our sins upon himself, to break the chains that were binding us, and then to shine light into our lives so that he could slowly lead us out of slavery and lead us back home to our father who, like that father in the, in the story of the prodigal son, is not waiting with arms crossed, irritated and angry at us for our indiscretions and our mistakes, but rather is waiting, hoping that we'll come home. And when he sees us, he doesn't wait for us to make that walk of shame. He runs to us and says, my son, my daughter is home. And he throws his arms around us and rejoices and throws a party. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he loves you. And that is what we celebrate during Christmas. Not merely the birth of a baby that's laid in a manger, although that's a part of that story. One that we'll look at in the coming weeks. But we celebrate the breaking in of the light of the world into our darkened reality and the fact that he hides 
His Spirit in our hearts when we give our hearts to Him. Not only does He save us, but then He makes us receptacles of that light. He gives us His Holy Spirit so that when we walk around in the darkness, we get to be ambassadors of hope and reconciliation. We get to shine brightly, not by our own power, but by the power of His love in us. We are not little suns in and of ourselves shining up in the sky. We're more like the moon that simply reflects the light of the sun. That's what we get to be. That is a gift. A gift of grace that we haven't earned. A gift of love that we don't deserve. A gift of new, which is in fact redeemed purpose. Because go back to Genesis chapter 1. Why did God create us? To be his representatives. Because of the Holy Spirit in our lives and his grace, what do we get to be? His representatives. And that is a gift. That is another part of what we celebrate this Christmas. And when you go home and you put up a Christmas tree or you string lights or you're just driving down the street and you see houses decorated in light, I don't know what it means for those individuals who have decorated their house. But I'll tell you this. As for me and my household, we recognize that as a reminder that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the light of the world and he has broken into our darkness and given us hope in the midst of a world that is broken and in the midst of lives where we don't have perfect lives, we don't have perfect marriage, I'm not a perfect father, I'm not a perfect pastor, I am not a perfect man in any way, shape, or form, and yet my Father in Heaven loves me. And the brokenness of this world does not get the last word. We have eternity to look forward to. In fact, when we say yes to Jesus Christ, eternity breaks into our reality here and now. Because what is eternity but getting to be in relationship with our Father. To get to walk in lockstep with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that begins the moment we say, yes, I am done trying to be the captain of my own ship. I am finished trying to fix myself and clean myself up and be like one of those dogs that gets wounded and runs off into the woods to lick its wounds until it heals. And then it only then comes slinking back in. Rather, we run right to the foot of the cross as we are still bleeding and say, I need you, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Please do for me what I can't do for myself. So that, that is what we celebrate during Christmas. Not presents. Not Santa. not way more food than we could ever possibly eat. We celebrate the fact that because of what Jesus has done for us, sinners are declared saints. Prodigals are welcomed home. And we, who were once estranged from our Father, get to be his ambassadors of hope and reconciliation, light shining in the darkness. So for those of you who, like me, recognize that there's a part of you that simply doesn't want to submit, a part of you that you a part of you that you've been holding back and saying, "God, you can have all of me but this." If you just recognize that you need a Savior this morning, like I need a Savior this morning, then I invite you to join me in praying the same prayer that I'm about to pray for myself. If you want to bow your heads.
You can just repeat this either out loud or in your heart. Father, I need you. I need you so much. I know that I'm an imperfect person. And I'm so tired of trying to do it by myself. Thank you for loving me in spite of my shortcomings. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. And I embrace the gift that you paid for me on the cross when you died in my place. I give you my life. I ask you to be my Lord, my shepherd, my guide. Have your way with me. Holy Spirit, come. Fill me up. Shine in the darkness of my heart. Clean house and glorify yourself through me. Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Uh, are we, Pete, are, do we have any? I, wow, I went late. Sorry. <laughs> it must have been those like 20 announcements that Lee had to go through. I blame him. <laughs> that was so like an Adam. It's that woman you gave me, God. It's, it's that lead pastor you gave me, God. He made me go late. Thankfully, most of the kids are over here right now. So, God, thank you for using us. Would you be light in our darkness, and would you help us to be light in our neighborhoods and our families? Go with us this week, I pray, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Hey, kids, those of you who are here right now that have been sitting quiet and you've been awesome, make sure you see Michelle at the back. She's got a special prize for you. I'm sorry that I said that.